I uh, really bore witness with uh, the prophecy that um, Mary gave to this morning about desperation. And one of the things we spoke about last, uh, last Sunday had to do with the difference between Penina, or Penina and Hannah. And what struck me was that Penina never seemed to be able to, be, to come to a place of despair and depth, depth, depths of despair the same way that Hannah did. And, uh, and there's something about this desperation that makes you pray in a very different way that adds force to our prayer because desperation actually keeps us there. And I want to talk a little bit about that today because uh, there's something very powerful about that. I remember, um, and, I, and I mentioned uh, this before, have you ever been with people who are desperate, people who have some burden in their heart that they carry that nobody understands, but which is very real? I, uh, I, I, I remember a time in which uh, our youngest daughter, Zephy, had uh, terrible um, breathing problems. Um, she was in the midst of swimming and all that, and she had, you know, involved involved in some national com- competition. And and there's something over a protracted amount of time in which, when you're 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 swimming at that at that uh, level of uh, stress, uh, things happen to your lungs. And the thing about it is that um, she had been. Um, having this problem for a, a while, and she had seen the doctor, and the doctor said she's going to be okay, but it was getting worse. The thing about it is that the doctor could not detect the, what Cindy could detect in, in Zephy. And so it went on for a while, and then they had to see the doctor again because it wasn't getting better. In fact, it was getting worse. And the diagnosis that was given did not seem to ring true to Cindy. And she was convinced that Zephy had pneumonia. And there was some resistance to that idea. But when you're desperate, I want to put it to you that sometimes desperation is not a ephemeral uh, emotion that we just have sometimes and it just comes and goes up and down. But sometimes it is because some truth has been deposited in you. And because of that truth, that desperation becomes a signal from the other side, from God's side. And Cindy could not let it go. And finally, she went to the doctor again and said, I am sure she has pneumonia. And the doctor said, I can't hear it. I can't detect it medically. But because I can detect it in your voice, because of the strength of the way in which you are speaking, I'm going to give her, is it an MRI or an X-ray? An X-ray. And they gave her an X-ray and found out that Zephy had double pneumonia. It was not detectable. There's something about desperation that is sometimes not a, um, a, a random emotion, 
but it is the ability when you have heart, when you have a heart that has some depth in it, to detect something that can't easily be detected. I remember another time when we were with friends at a swimming pool, uh, in their house and, and, and the pool, and I think I mentioned this before, and we had, we had all, they had an um, on, uh, above ground swimming pool, so you have to take a ladder, and you get on the ladder, and then you go, go into the pool. And we had finished swimming, and, you know, and uh, we were all in the house for lunch, and we were all enjoying our lunch, and, you know, talking and all that. And then Cindy said, did you hear that? And everybody said, no, didn't hear anything. She said, I heard something. I heard somebody sh- scream. But none of us were there. There were like easily eight of us. Actually, m- more, I think, including children, yeah. And she rushed out. In spite of our protestations that there was nothing. And she found out that Zephy, and she was maybe two years old, had somehow got onto the ladder, got up and fallen into the pool. <laughs> fallen into the pool and was holding onto a floater by one hand. Now, this is a two-year-old hand. And she found her. I want to say that sometimes desperation comes from a voice that is, as I often say, from the other side, from God's side. And I, and I want to say that there is something about that that is really important for us because today's uh, sermon is really about that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to um, share with you uh, a passage of Scripture from Isaiah chapter 65. And uh, we'll turn to it right now and then we'll pray. Okay? Isaiah chapter 65. And we will turn to it. I'm reading from NASB. Today's message looks like it's going all over the place, but I hope there will be some reason and some order in this madness. Let's read it from verse 1. I permitted myself to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I permitted myself to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I to a nation which did not call on my name. I have spread out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts, a people who continually provoke me to my face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on bricks, who sit among graves and spend the night in secret places, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of unclean meat is in their pots, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will even repay into their bosom both their iniquities and the iniquities of their fathers together, says the Lord. Because they have burned incense on the mountains and scorned me on the hills, therefore I will measure their former work into their bosom. Thus says the Lord, as the new wine is found in the cluster... And one says, do not destroy it, for there is benefit in it. So I will act on behalf of my servants, in order not to destroy all of them. I'll bring forth offspring from Jacob, and an heir of my mountains from Judah. Even my chosen ones shall inherit it, and my servants will dwell there. 
Sharon will be a pasture land for flocks and the valley of Achor, a resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But you who forsake the Lord, who forsake my holy mountain, who set a table for fortune and who fill cups with mixed wines for destiny. Fortune and destiny are two gods. Yeah, They're two gods. So they are demonic spirits. I will destine you for the sword, sword, and all of you will bow down to the slaughter because I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear, and you did evil in my sight and chose that in which I did not delight. Therefore, such says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. See the two du- dualities. There's two, two streams opposite, going opposite directions. Behold, my servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart, but you will cl- cry with a heavy heart. You will wail with a broken spirit, and you will leave your name for a curse to my chosen ones, and the Lord will s- slay you. But my servants will be called by another name, because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by the God of truth. And he who swears on the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hidden from my sight. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing, and her people for gladness. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will be no longer heard in her the voice of weeping and the voice of crying. No longer will there be an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought a curse. Kind of, why did you only live to 100, right? That's the promise. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit, and they will not plant and another eat. That's a promise of God. Yeah, it's a promise of God. But you can see the duality between two kinds of people. And I want to talk about this because the Bible is full of these dualities. You have Samuel on one side and then Phineas and Hophni on the other side. You have the remnant and the rest. And it doesn't actually go well for the rest. It doesn't go well for the majority. It's, it's shocking. It's scary that it, uh, the Bible does not often predict w- well for the majority, but it always hones in on the, what, the, what is often called the remnant. And now we will talk about that today. All right, let's pray. We welcome you, Holy Spirit, to give to us your word, your message, and your substance, even as we spend this 45 minutes to an hour together. What we really desperately ask is for is your presence and your speaking. We not only ask for you to speak to us, but to put into us the very substance of what you are speaking to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are here and you have good great and marvelous things for us. So come and speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 65, you see this um, contrast 
between those who he calls the inheritors of the mountains and those who did not seek God. Yeah? They did not seek God. Those who did not seek God begin to reap the consequences of their own life. They don't even need God to put, that, put, put curses upon them. They actually eat to themselves their curses. They eat pig's flesh. They eat uh, things that are not good. It's almost as if their, their lack of desire for God is grounded upon a desire for other things that are unhealthy, that are dangerous. It's very interesting that what we see in Isaiah 65 is an utter lack of desire for God. It's utter lack of passion, delight in God at all. It's, God is like wearisome for them. And what Isaiah begins to do is to begin to separate out these two. And you see these dualisms all through the Bible. There's a remnant, and then there's the rest. Isn't that amazing? It's Joshua and Caleb, and the rest. And often, the remnant is very much smaller than the majority. You think about Joshua and Caleb, and the rest of, uh, of the, 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 ten spi- the 12 spies, actually the 10 spies, right? Two against 10. It's quite amazing. And it makes me wonder why it would be that only Joshua and Caleb and their families would survive and enter into the promised land. And in spite of the fact that the promise is given to all of Israel, right? The rest actually all die in the wilderness. That is an overwhelming majority. It tends to make you not very hopeful. It tends to make you think, what makes, I, what, what, do I, what makes me think that I will enter the promised land when most people, and you can't tell me there aren't good people among those, those don't. What, what's going on in that? It's, the, more you, more you, the more you think about it, you don't find many cases in the Bible of the majority being correct. What do you think of that? It's just discouraging, downright discouraging. And whose fault is that? Surely God could have administered it better, planned it better. Why make so many people for destruction? And so these are some of the thoughts that sometimes come to my mind as I think about it. And by what twist of fate can I hope even to be part of the remnant if they are such a minority? <laughs> but you look at that in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah doesn't say it's all a matter of chance. It, he actually says there are things that make us part of the remnant. They seek God. They desire God. Yeah? And God is saying, no, actually, I spread out my hands, open wide to you, and said, seek me, seek me, seek me. But they don't. In fact, in the mountains and the hilltops, which are a symbol of the place of our spirit, right? 
The mountain is the place where, we, where God reveals Himself to us, correct? In the Bible on Mount Sinai or, you know, you, you read the Psalm, Psalm 68, or everywhere you see Mount Zion, you know, Mount Calvary, all these places. The, the mountains are the places where God seeks. And so the high places are the places where altars are kept and, and, and God is, is, is found. But the mountains are also the place of our most innermost um, desires. And you can give these mountains to demonic spirits or you can give these mountains to God, the mountains in our lives. And what Isaiah chapter 65 is saying is that actually on the mountains, instead of seeking God, you are actually eating pig's flesh. You are actually burning incense to other gods. So basically, in the deepest desires of your heart, you've given that, part, so that, that, that place of your heart to those things that are not only unhealthy, but they are an affront to God. That place that is sanctified is supposed to be a sanctuary for God that belongs to God, from which God can actually reveal Himself to you, cause your face to shine like Moses, from which the power of God can emanate from that place, where you can actually meet God, and you find your calling, you find God speaking to you. From that place, God does wonderful things. God actually spreads His light throughout all the world. Even the, the rabbis actually talk about that, that his, his light shines and refracts through the, from the mountain to the rest of the world. That's what's supposed to happen. But what Israel had done is that it had actually replaced God with other desires. It's interesting that they talk about, uh, that Isaiah speaks about pig, eating pig's flesh, swine's flesh on that place. It's almost as if in the secret place of our heart, we have secret desires that are dark, that are dangerous, that are corrupting, and that destroy us. And what Isaiah was saying is this, you need to seek me and let that place be a place of seeking me rather than seeking others. Now, here's where we come into the problem. The problem is that there's often a lack of hunger or a lack of desire, a lack of desperation. Don't you find that? So, and God's always seeking out people who would not only worship Him in the forms of it, in the music of it, but seeking Him with all their hearts. He's always looking for them. And there are not that many. And later on, I want, I'd like to share with you why I think that is so. Okay? But He's always looking for those who will desire Him and know and ask Him, what are you, what's on your heart? Let me fulfill your heart's desires. The mountain of the Lord is a powerful place in which God gets one-on-one -on -one with us and speaks to us what's the secret of his heart. We've been speaking about that for the past few days. Yeah? And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just leave this with you and, 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 and perhaps come back to it uh, either this Sunday or, or later on. But I, I want to put that the, the promises of God, the promises to build houses, live in them, eat, plant vineyards and, and eat from them, it's all centered on our relationship with God, this place, this secret place that we cultivate and live in and inhabit with God. Amen?
All right. So that's what I want to want want to want to put it to you, put to, put to you. The problem, I think, with all of us, in some ways, is that we've got what I would call fallen desires. We've got a desire for God. It's there somewhere. But because of the fall, there are marbleized within the meat of our own spiritual life. There's marbleized, corrupted desires as well. What say you? The corrupted desires. There are desire, there are desires for things that don't really come from God. Yeah? And so Isaiah chapter 65 says, You chose that which I did not delight in. You know, verse 12, I will destine you for the sword, because I called you, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not hear, and you did evil in my sight, and chose that in which I did not delight. And so there's an error of wrong delight, wrong taste. It's almost as if the taste, the, the, the things that we find pleasure in are just off. There's something broken about it. There's something diseased about it. And what God was basically saying to the children of Israel is that your desires are taking you to bad places. They're taking you far away from me because you choose that which I do not desire. Isaiah chapter 56 also says, you know, to those who choose the things that please me, I will give them in my house, in my walls, a name that is better than sons and daughters, to choose the things that please me. Now, I don't doubt that we all have a heart for God. Even the worst of us have a heart from God. But our heart from God often hits those marbleized places in which Diseased desires can happen. One day you can be in church and worshipping the Lord. The next moment, a few hours later, you'll be on the TV watching porn. You can have those two things happen. Your desire for the Lord can grow and go places and then suddenly you hit a place that's destructive. There's something about our taste that's I wouldn't say just wonky. It's just broken. It's just corrupted. And I believe it's the result of the fall. And that's what causes many good people to actually get corrupted. People who get corrupted, who actually do evil things, are not necessarily all evil. It's just that they hit those places in which their taste is not for the things of God. It's for the things that are actually destructive. And sometimes they know that it's destructive, but it's hit. You've hit it. In your progress towards God, suddenly you hit this place in which you say, no, I can't go any further because I'm, I'm going to lose too much. And what that does is that it changes our desire. It actually it muffles our desire and it it. it it, it spreads out a desire and it causes it to refract into bad places. I'd like to talk about this, ma this, this matter of taste. And what I mean by taste is not something superficial. I mean taste in the most profound way. Our preferences, our desires, our pleasures. Yeah? Yesterday we had a fascinating 
uh, discussion with uh, uh, the um, children of promise. And we talked a bit about how in this day and age, human identity is identified with our psychology because we are seen as psychological people and that we are defined by our psychology, by our, our personality types and our desires, our subjective pleasures, our subjective joys, our subjective uh, self-identifications and all that. And that is, becomes the definition of who, who we are. We are defined self, uh, s- subjectively. Yeah? So I define who I am. And uh, Carl Truman calls this psychological man, where we are defined to- in totality by our psychology, our preferences, our desires. Yeah? And we were talking about that, and, and I began to realize, because one of us actually spoke about the fact that because of the fact that we identified with the psychological, then it's easy for us to be identified with the pleasures that we have. So we go and we follow the pleasures that we want because nobody can question that because our pleasures are now identified with our identity. Whether it's my sexual preference or it's my my particular preference in uh, who I like to go around with or to be identified with, it's preferences and pleasures. And, 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 And one of the things is that defines us often is the, heart, the, the way in which we are a people who have the freedom in pursuit of happiness. Now, what we've done is this. We've taken the meaning of happiness from the Aristotelian meaning, which had to do with the good, not necessarily what makes us emotionally happy or makes us pleasurable, but we've redefined it and we've called it what makes us happy based upon happenstance and circumstances and based upon our emotions and our pleasures. Does that make sense? But that's not really what happiness meant many, many years ago. Originally, the happy life was the life that is lived meaningfully in accordance with the gods. If you, you think in terms of Aristotle, you, in... in, in um, in conjunction with the good, the true, and the beautiful. So somebody may not feel emotionally happy, but he's living the happy life, or she's living the happy life, because she's living a life that is worthwhile. It's in accordance with the gods, in accordance with that which is beyond the universe. Yeah. So now what we do is that we think that happiness is psychologically defined. That means what's going on within the dynamics of our own psychology. Yeah. So we think about it as in, in this way. So we legitimize our psychological preferences. And it was Sanjeev, actually, who mentioned how we become, and, and end up becoming people who are seekers of pleasure. And so we are seekers, our pursuit of happiness becomes our pursuit of pleasure. I'm simplifying it grossly. I understand that. But can you see the stream that, that that's so easy for us to do that? I don't think all of us necessarily wholly, totally feel that way. But there's that that goes on. And I think one of the things that um, we have to deal with in order for us to be able to be brought before God and be one, one of those who God can bring into the promises that He has 
has to do with how we are, our desires are desperate for God. Okay. Let's have a look at this from um, um, Exodus chapter 16. You can see this in Exodus chapter 16, how our tastes, so to speak, yeah? our tastes are not conduced to God. Okay, so they've come out of, the, out of Egypt, they've gone through the, the, the Red Sea, and they are now in the wilderness. And then they complain to Moses. Okay, you want to see this? It's in verse 3. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So what, was, what Israel was saying is this, okay? Now that they are free from Egypt, free from slavery, free from bondage, free from crushing labor, okay? They are saying, true, Egypt is terrible, but it is better for us to be in Egypt because we had the pleasures. It is better because the flesh pots and the meat pots and all that were better. In chapter 14 of Exodus, in fact, just before they, 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 they enter into this, uh, this trial, they said to Moses, verse 11 of chapter 14, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is it not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better. It would have been better. Uh, as he say in America, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. It would have been better. So what children of Israel are saying is this. It is actually a better option for us to follow the pleasure, to follow our tastes back to Egypt because even though Egypt is a place of bondage, the pleasures are real. The, the pleasures are real, and not only that, our desires define us. So I would def I'd rather define the place that is pleasant for me to live based upon these pleasures. What makes me happy? That's their pursuit of happiness. And on several occasions, the nation of Israel tried to get back to Egypt, right? Right up to the point when uh, they were near the, the promised land. That is something interesting that I find that is not only in the, the, the nation of Israel, but it's in us as well. And that is that we live in a society in which the pleasure principle, the taste, is something that defines us and we follow that, even if it's going to kill us. Even though it's spiritual seaside, we will go after those things. 
And that is why there is a certain irrational part of us that seeking God and we are building up our lives. Have you found this? Even it happens in fact, we're building up our lives and things are going fine. And then we hit a certain part where that, that corrupt desire and taste begins to, that's marbleized in, in, in through our, the, the old nature. It just hits us and boom, you can be building up something from scratch and then almost irrationally, the desire for something corrupted takes over. And you say, I'm going to have to turn back. I can't, I can't hack it anymore. And I want to put it to you that actually at the root of a lot of our problems really is this problem of taste. Our desire needs healing. And God has, in Christ, brought healing to us. And we'll talk a little bit about how that healing can take place. Yeah? But look at that. Okay, let's keep on with chapter 16. Now, what happens in chapter 16 is that they begin to complain as the flesh pots and all that. And God gives them two things. Quail at night, yeah? Meat at night. And manna in the morning. Correct? Manna in the morning, quail at night. Okay? Or, or meat at night. And so it came about that God did not make them suffer, but God gave them something from heaven. Yeah? Actually, Psalm 78 says they ate angels' food, the food of angels. Yeah? Psalm 78, they, they ate something that was really good. And verse 13, so it came about at evening that the quails came up and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness, there was a fine flake-like thing, fine as the frost on the ground. And when the sons of Israel saw it, they said to another, what is it? That is translated, manna. God called it the food of angels. That man call it, what is it? Or another, another translation, what is this? And by the time you get to Numbers 11, they complain about it. They complain about it. But God says, Look, I'm giving you angels food. I'm giving you food. There is a variance between your taste and the good things that I have for you. And you need to be healed. Or you need to repent. Because until... Your taste changes, you're going to find yourself broken up again and again and again. All, time, all the time, your, pro, your progress will be interrupted by this place in which your taste is, is at variance with what I have. And so later on in chapter 16, God says, it is the house of Israel that called it manna. So you've got to know, manna is not God's name for that food. God never called it that. Who called it that? Israel. And I think God was hurt <laughs> in some ways. He says, it was the house of Israel. You called it manna. Okay, you find this in chapter 16. We don't have time to go, go into it. We're going to go all over the place today. You call it manna. And manna was, what is this? What is this? So there's something about it that, that, 
we come up against again and again and again and again and again and again. You can have a great day, a great retreat, and you'll be fired up by God. And then you hit this marbleized, corrupted desire that's there. And it does something to you. It does a number on you. I feel that God is wanting to um, address that before we go to uh, forest homes or before we go and broach the rest of our lives. There's something broken in our desires and our tastes. And there's a vein of corrupted desire that's turned inward into itself. So that on one hand, C.S. Lewis' weight of glory tells us that there is something in us that desires as a longing for something that's beyond, something from heaven, postcards from a, a country that you've never been to, songs from a, 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 a song that you've never heard. But there's an inkling of that, and, and, and the deeper part of us goes for that. And then on the other hand, there's this other thing, this other thing that is broken desires that will lead us to destruction. Please turn with me to um, Psalm 112. And here, I believe, is a key. It says, praise the Lord. How blessed is the man or woman, boy or girl, who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments who greatly delights in his commands, his descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever, and light rises in the darkness. Abundance arises in adversity. Light rises in the darkness. For the upright, he is gracious, compassionate, righteous, well. It goes well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. He will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not eat, fear evil tidings. All because he delights greatly in the Lord's commandments. Isn't that amazing? He says, blesses the man who fears the Lord. And you can start with fearing the Lord. You may not have much delight in it, but if you fear the Lord, you greatly delight in His commandments, things begin to happen. And how basic and how pivotal is desire and delight? Now, how do I delight in the Lord? How, do I, how, how does that actually happen? Because the truth of the matter is, I'm marbleized with corrupt desires. I'm marbleized with the pleasure principle. I'm marbleized in my soul with all this. But it says here, you start with fearing on the Lord. Blessed is the person who fears the Lord, takes great delight in His commandments. His children will be mighty in the, in the land. He will not be shaken. Something begins to be established there. Yeah? God is actually going to turn that, turn that around because when Christ came, this is really important, you see. Now this is, what I'm about to say is very pivotal because it will determine the difference between Christianity as a religion and Christianity as a, rela- as, as, as a, as a reality. Christianity and religion says, okay, I got to fear the Lord. 
and I got to make myself change my desires. I hope by fearing the Lord, I will change my desires. And nothing happens. I'll screw my, uh, um, my, my, my determination to the sticking place and desire God, desire God, desire God. You can't. Your inner most person, inner most person what the Bible calls the old man, does not have the capacity. The old man is corrupted. The old man cannot by its own self desire God. The old man is marbleized with corrupt desires. It's diseased. It's disease in its desire. The religion is all about the old man trying to, in and of ourselves, become a Christian, do Christian things, and do these things so that these blessed, blessed promised land things will happen. That is religion. That is not actually Christianity. It's not the reality of God. The reality of God is this, that when Christ came, He took upon Himself throughout His life, He was slain before the foundation of, of the world. That means before He came on, on the scene. He took upon Himself your old person, your old desires, your corrupted desires and mine, and put it upon Himself. When He went to the cross, your desires and my desires that were corrupted were nailed to the cross and they were crucified with Him. Christianity is not Christianity without the cross, you see. Because most of the time, Christianity is portrayed as some kind of self-help kind of thing in which you're like, do it, just do it. Some elitist thing in which good people with great intelligence and great gifts and great determination can do that, or great work ethic can do that. No, that's not Christianity at all. That is some religion in which it tries to, 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 to imitate Christianity. No, Christianity has start, doesn't start that way. It starts with the fact that Christ, who was a sinless, perfect Son of God, took upon Himself all your corruption, took upon Himself all your past, your your, your, your sin and your failings. He took it upon Himself. When He died, the spectacle of, of the universe is the fact that when He died, your corruption died with Him. That's the only way your corruption could be killed. Not by self-help, not by seeing a, a pastor or a, or a bishop or a, or a, or a, or a counsellor or anything. Not by any of that. Not by seeing any kind of medical help or, or chiropractic help. None of that would actually help. Only the cross of Christ could do that. It, took, it will take a miracle. The, the presumption is this, that we as Christians, many people think, if I can just get, the, get the, the motivation in, I will be able to do that. No, you can't. And any kind of Christianity that says that you can is not Christianity. This Christianity starts with the barrenness of us, the utter hopelessness of us. And when I come to this place, I recognize the sin, the need that I have for God, that I can't help myself. I, take, I, I by faith, take upon myself what Christ has done. He says, He on his bond, um, bore our sins on His body on the tree, First Peter that we will not live to unrighteousness, but to righteousness unto Him. Amen? How do you do it? By faith. That's all. No, no, no rigmarole, no, no acrobatics. You just say, by faith, I come to a place where I'm, I'm zero. I have no hope in myself. I surrender my life to you, Lord. And by faith, I accept the fact that you have exchanged your life with me. I have Jesus in me. I still have, bear 
the, 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 the old person. But the Jesus in me is power, more powerful, more dominant. It's more me. If I identify my identity by the, on the basis of my personality type, or by, by my history, or by all the things that the, 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 the gift, uh, gift analysis uh, documents do, I'll miss who I am. I am nothing but a dead person who, who has been inhabited by Christ. And that's why I put on Christ. Amen? That is important because I, there is no remedy. There is no remedy for my base desires. There's no remedy for it. I can't help it. I can't help the way I am. And when I buy into an idea that I should follow my pleasures, I'm only going for a spiritual suicide because my pleasures, my own desires are diseased. They will go quickly down the drain. I'll feel happy for a while, but I'll be completely destroyed by it. Exodus chapter 16 talks about this fact that, that the nation of Israel thought that following your tastes is a, vi- a viable option. And in these days of virtual worlds, we could almost think that that is actually a credible solution. But it's not. If you follow that, you will only follow destruction. I believe that God has something for us today. And so when, he's, when Psalm 112 presupposes, presupposes the cross, okay, we read it with New Testament eyes, and we see how blessed is the person who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. We are saying this, that there are going to be times in which I come, again, come up against my own corrupt desires. The desires that could take everything that I've built up and completely destroy them and be in bondage to them. I come before Him and I say, you change my desires. And the, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with faith, knowing that Christ is actually, as we wait upon Him, exchanging these desires with old, with new desires. Amen? Now, I know, if you take a trivial example, that I have a, a taste for sweet things. It's really dangerous. It's really dangerous. The more and more I read about all this insulin levels and insulin um, um, sensitivity and all that, it scares the heebie-jeebies out of me because I know that I'm the biggest candidate for diabetes and that's only the start of it. But I myself saw that the desire for sugary stuff and sweet things is very, very strong. And it comes around the same time every night. It comes at the wrong time, 10.30. You should be stopping your eating by 8, so they say. But at 10 o'clock sharp, another law that is within me starts operating. And I start looking and looking and I know the usual places. And I, I know the, different, the, 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 the previous decisions I've made to make sure that provision will be uh, available. 
for my things. So there's a certain amount of willfulness there. And one day the Lord spoke to me, you're going to die. You're going to die. He's going to kill you. I have more for you. And I want to use you. It was during my sabbatical and I knew that the Lord was convicting me. But I well knew, and I hate to sound really lame, but anyway, I'll tell you anyway, how difficult it was. Other people are having difficulty coping with far, far, far deeper problems. I was struggling with this stupid difficulty. I well knew when 10 o'clock comes, the wolfman comes out and howls at me. And so I, I came before him, came before the cross, and I said, look, unless, Lord, unless you take this away from me, it's going to kill me. I can't. I, and I made a decision before I felt any different, okay? To fear the Lord and you greatly delight. The decision was to actually stop it. The moment I made that decision, I lost my taste for these things. I still like him, but I, I lost the bondage. The bondage was broken. Amen. So that is only in the level of, of the, the physical. I believe that it's true, whether it's bitterness, it's an addiction, it's a corruption of any sort. You see, the thing is this. Your tastes are unfaithful. If you marry someone based upon your tastes, you will be unfaithful to that person that you marry. Because tastes go up and down, they change. And if you follow taste and you validate taste, then taste will actually make you a very unfaithful person. If you follow taste in following God, or you want to be following your, your ambition or your call, or so to speak, based upon taste, you will be unfaithful to that call because your taste is not who you are. Your taste is not who you are. Your taste is actually a mixture of good and bad. And if you go by the things that you like, your, and your call is based upon liking things, your call will destroy you. That, that will destroy your call. Because the call that God has for you involves rigorous and vigorous uh, um, um, depriving of those tastes. In fact, breakthroughs in the call involve not following those tastes, but actually breaking up with those tastes. This answer is not following your tastes but following God. Amen? And so I will put it to you that actually God is leading each one of us. We all have a heart for God, but you will come to points in which your pursuit of God, your prayer life will get stopped and hindered. Let's pray. And I want, as we pray, as we bow our heads in prayer, I want to invite you to ask God, what am I coming up against? in terms of my desires, that causes my desire for you to flag. 
know this, that whether it's an addiction, it's a wonky taste, it's a corruption or a sin, or it's a well-harbored and secret desire, a certain obsession of the imagination, it's loving someone or something more than God, You cannot defeat it yourself. But Christ has done it. He carried that very thing on on himself on the cross. You only have to just remember your last time of prayer and what hijacked it. Your last time in which you want to do, your do, to do your devotions and you want to seek God, but something else came up. And look for the pattern. You only have to look for that. Lord, we welcome you. into those places in which the previous godly desperation just sank into just a lack of feeling and just a lack of desire. We welcome you to those places in which we have had a hard time. Some of us have experienced guilt. Just guilt that God would not accept us. I want to put it to you that Jesus took upon himself all your guilt and my guilt. All your shame and my shame. Everything that makes you feel that you are not acceptable to God, Jesus took it upon himself on the cross. And he carried it for you. He took it out of your hands. He took it out of your heart. And he placed it upon himself so that you never ever have to feel that you can only be accepted by God based upon how good you are and how faithful you are. There are people who are here who just felt, I've just failed, I've just been unfaithful to God for as far as I remember. I'm not acceptable to God. And God says, no, you cannot go by that anymore. Because on the cross, I carried all that for you. All the things of your past, I carry it upon myself. You are a new creation. From now, by faith, you can draw upon me, wait upon me. And as that happens, slowly, those corrupt desires begin to abate, begin to fade. Stay there. Stay there. No matter how far you've gone, Jesus has paid the price for you to come back. There are some people who felt they've been building and building and building and suddenly in one fell swoop they've fallen and they feel they have to start all over again. I want to say to you, don't lose hope because God is still building you. 
pick yourself up and receive God's forgiveness. Don't take it for granted, but do receive it as God's forgiveness. And He'll build you up. Praise you, Lord. Just talk to Him right now and just give it to Him. I just sense right now that his kindness, his kindness is leading us into repentance. It's a room, it's a room for us where he begins to cleanse us of those things that we know we can't move forward with or even look him in the eyes with as we take on his work. So Lord, we just come, we come before you right now. We ask you will circumcise our hearts, Lord. We are sorry. We are sorry we have worshipped that which is so below you. It's nothing, things that are passing away, glittery things that are not real gold, that are not what's better than gold. We have, we've worshipped those things by enjoying them instead of you. And so we say, would you forgive us for that? Thank you for worshipping that which, Lord God, maybe got us further maybe brought us in higher estimation in the eyes of others or even in our own eyes. But Lord, it didn't come from your throne. Would you forgive us? We accept it. We know you were slain before the foundation of the world. You knew what was going to happen. So we look up into your eyes again and we say, thank you. Circumcise these hearts so that they will not hold on to what's corrupt anymore in Jesus' name. We open ourselves for a new circumcision right now. Take it away, Lord. Lord, I want to to bring before you my brothers and my sisters. We stand, we'll sit before you ready to receive your new life. By faith, we receive it into those very places where there's been just falling and failing and flailing. We ask you that even now in this place, you enter in and we receive what you have done for us on the cross. We receive the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from every stain. We receive the blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to give us this new life. You are our life now. We have no life out other than you. And so we commit ourselves into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.